Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID conversation. Today, my guest is Dr. Simon Longstaff, one of the best-known philosophers in Australia. For nearly 30 years, Simon has been director of the St. James Ethics Centre in Sydney, a terrific organisation that engages with the business and wider community in teasing apart the complexities of what we might call the right thing. Last April, Simon, in an interview with Richard Feidler, you said you were deeply concerned about Australia's social condition and that we were on the cusp of enormous change. A year later, boom, we now have a society in greater flux than we can get our heads around. Were you thinking that change would be on this scale and of this quality? Yes, John, I I was thinking it would be on this scale and depth. I don't think I was predicting it to be as quick as it has come upon us. And that is because I think what we're experiencing with COVID-19 is a taste of something that I thought was about a decade away. So what I had in mind was civilizational change of a, a whole new order brought on by advances in technology, um, the kind of technology like robotics and AI and biotech that would radically transform the world of work, the way we live, even concepts of what it means to be human and also new geopolitical realities that we could see in which there was a breakdown in the rules-based international order and the rise of China and rivalry and a whole lot of other complexity. So I thought we should start thinking about it. It would take a decade or so, but if we were going to be prepared, we would have built by that time the kind of ethical infrastructure that would cope. But as you say, boom, here we are in COVID-19 and we're experiencing many of the same phenomena that might have been produced by that longer time frame. We're seeing massive unemployment. We're seeing rising global tensions, just so many different areas. And so we're being forced to rethink at a much earlier point than might have been required. And I think it's caught us somewhat unawares. In some ways, is that a good thing? Are we perhaps better placed at the moment to to start thinking about these things than we might have been if we were suddenly thinking 10 years down the track, mm. the human uh, impulse tending to be to delay these to delay these matters until we really have to address them. So has COVID-19 done us a favour? Well, I'd never want to say it's done us a favour because of the terrible loss of life and amenity and all the rest. But if, if you take something, if you like, from the wreckage that it's caused, I think it has prompted us in a way that we could turn to good use and ability to rethink how we're going to arrange our affairs. I think in that, there's one particularly important lesson that COVID-19 has brought to our attention, and that is for all of the power of governments and the policy-making capacity and its economic might, ultimately, the ability to defeat COVID-19 has lain in the hands of ordinary Australians consistently making decisions that they want to do the right thing, not being compelled, but simply wanting to do so, partly for personal interest, but I think also with public interest. And what it's shown is that you can affect major change in the world by ordinary people making decisions which bring them to fall just on the right side of questions from time to time. So, We've got two good things coming from it, from all the wreckage. One is an understanding that we can make a difference without having to adopt a heroic stance. And secondly, that these things need to be talked about well in advance of when they come crashing upon us in their fully formed state. Look, on the uh, St James Ethics Centre website, there's a page that's headlined 
You've been hitting us up with your COVID-19 ethical questions. We've been sending our ethicists into the philosophy lab to cook up some answers. Mm. So firstly, what's the most commonly asked question to land on the website and what's the most difficult? So there's been quite a lot around the kind of choices around education, children, families, um, where the boundaries lie, things of those kind. Um, and, and day-to-day, sort of the day-to-day issue of coping, I, I think that would be the general cluster. The most difficult ones... How, 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 how is that presented in an, in an ethical in an ethical framework, say the educational, just the, the day-to-day stuff? Well, it's it's a series of uh, different dimensions that come from it. So people are thinking about, you know, well, it may be the most convenient for them to do would be perhaps send the children back to school. Uh, that would allow better working oh, right. from home and things of that kind. But, you know, should I be doing yeah. that uh, when, in fact, it might be against the public interest? And then how do I balance these different tensions that might come from personal interest versus the public good? So that's the that's the general form. Um, the most difficult ones I was expecting um, would have come out of the healthcare world, but that has not happened. I think the way in which people have managed this uh, pandemic have meant that we haven't had the extraordinary pressure on ICU beds and ventilators and things like that that we were preparing for. So some of the really difficult life and death decisions haven't been made. But the ones I've been encountering, not necessarily on the website, have been more to do with what's happening in the world of work where people have been making decisions about who, if you like, survives with their job intact and those who do not as a direct consequence of COVID-19. And how do you balance, for example, the interest of maintaining the viability of an organisation versus the questions about the obligations you might owe to people in the workplace? And particularly, do you take into account things like the relative vulnerability of some as opposed to others? Or do you apply a general measure equally, irrespective of the distinctive position of each person? So these are things that people have been wrestling with and and probably at a volume which they're not used to where, you know, the, the, the ethical dimension of what they're deciding is really explicit. And it just doesn't stop. It keeps coming time and time and time again. You you must find that quite heartening that, I mean, this whole situation throws up all manner of questions that for some people could just be abstract. They're big questions, Mm -hmm. but they may not affect them directly. But it must be heartening that for you to see people genuinely wrestling with what is the right thing to do. I mean, that's that's got to be a good starting point for anything. Yeah. Uh, And I guess within that, what question would you like to see people, uh, given this whole question of personal agency, what, what question would you like to see people thinking about at this time? Well, if I had to pick one, it would probably be about something like, who is my neighbour or what is my duty to strangers? I, I think a feature of this particular event has been that every single person in Australia, irrespective of their status, whether as an immigrant or a young person or an old person, has had to play their role in trying to manage the risks to the community as a whole. And yet what we've done through decisions of government is 
distinguish between certain groups and others. So citizens versus non-citizens, people with certain visas or others, arts workers versus this and that. So on the one hand, you've had this sense of collective responsibility where everyone has been told, including by governments, you are responsible for how we pass through this. And yet not everybody's been treated as somebody deserving of support. And I think that's that sense, that kind of core question of justice in a situation like this where we're all in it in solving it, but we're not all in it in terms of supporting each other, I think is a question that needs to be reflected on quite deeply, as well as some of the false equivalences that were being made between, say, the economy on one hand and health on the other. And I understand the temptation to do that, but I think that there was some, some sloppy thinking. If we'd only been a little bit more careful, we probably could have had a better kind of conversation about what we're doing at present and how we might emerge in the future. Well, can you enlarge on that a bit? What, what kind of conversation? Well, Where so, would you like to have seen it go? Well, well there's a few things. Firstly, I think um, what we failed adequately to do was to distinguish between, for example, the risk to older people and those who are infirm, where the only solution that we have given the absence of a vaccine and given the low level of knowledge we have about the operation of this virus, we had only one thing we could do, which was physical isolation and distancing and the kind of thing that's been called the lockdown. Uh, whereas there are a whole lot of other questions on the other side of the equation, like those to do with intergenerational equity or the burden on mental health from the lockdown and things, where there are so many things we could have done and some of which we are doing better to manage those situations. And yet often in the public debate, we said, oh, well, it's, you know, what's the life of an old person worth as opposed to the burden that might be borne by a younger generation for decades to come? And I, I could never understand why that question was allowed to be posed as regularly as it was on those grounds. Because one of the things you have to ask yourself when you're doing this is not just do we decide these matters according to consequences, whether they're economic, social, health or otherwise, but there's also a question about what kind of people you are. Who are you when you have that conversation, when you make that decision, when you try to reduce the distinctive nature of a human life to something like a quality, a quality adjusted life year, which is a unit for calculation? What do you become when you do that? Because my hunch is, going back to where we started, that the, the sorts of challenges we'll face in the future where there is this large-scale displacement of people from the kind of employment we've seen in the past, which will pass across, you know, working-class people, middle-class people, however you divide the demographics up, everyone will be affected. It's going to need a broader way of thinking about this than just saying, well, let's do what we did in the past or let's continue to maintain you know, a kind of indifferent calculation about things without seeing the embodied nature of the choices we'll have to make. I think um, I've been very intrigued by the fact that, say, I've heard my GP weigh up this question, the, the, and he's, he's in his late 60s, talking about the trade-off of, of uh, you know, should he, should he um, you know, what, what's the worth of his life? And, and should, in fact, older people um, just be allowed to sort of go to God? It's, 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 just a, it's just been a conversation. I've heard people talking about this idea with a kind of earnest wonder, and, and perhaps I've even suspected some, some guilty pleasure. Mm. I, I thought having the conversation has actually been a good thing. Yeah. Uh, no one's in a, you know, none of these people have been in some great rush to see Granny go into the grave and, and so on and so forth. But it's, um, 
I see something quite positive about people raising these issues and thinking about them because they do, it, it tends to sort of uh, reflect on, 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 on other questions. And as you say about what kind of people we are. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's wonder, I agree. It's wonderful to see the conversation. What you hope for, though, is that what emerges from the conversation is a slightly greater capacity to discern some of the really important distinctions. I'll just give you one example. I was chatting with one of my colleagues yesterday about uh, the whole business about some of the unintended consequences, if you like, around uh, things like JobKeeper, which is a kind of life support system for businesses and other organisations yeah. in the economy. And it suddenly struck me that there's a very interesting question about this that parallels the sorts of decisions we might make when it's literally an end-of-life decision involving a person. So, there's a, there's a critical distinction to be made when you're thinking about whether to continue with medical assistance for a person. There are many distinctions, but one of the most important is, are you prolonging life or are you merely extending the process of dying? And often when people are brought to the point of saying, well, yes, please continue or don't continue, that distinction is not presented to them. So there are some family members, for example, who quite inadvertently become complicit in making someone they love die very slowly, not something they would ever have chosen to do if they were given that choice. Now, take that very human moment and ask, well, if you're running a business and it's being sustained on life support, if you like, but it was always destined to fail in the changing circumstances of the world. What are we doing with all of this? Have we actually prolonged the life of organisations or have we just made them die very slowly by extending it out? And how would we think about that in terms of even the question about, well, do you take a moment like this and ask, is there still a role for an organisation, whether it's a business or something like what we do, is there still a role for us to play or does this very sharp moment in time invite us to reflect on whether or not this is the right thing to be doing in this particular form? Right, well, I, I guess at the moment most businesses are just a kind of this, um, as you say, are on life support and they're on life support to to give something of a living to, to the workers and that's without necessarily being productive. It's, a, it's mm. an interesting situation. I, I, one question, I mean, I, you, you've talked about on the website about these being complicated times and, and the ethics becoming more complicated. I've often wondered about that, about how ethics do become more complex in complicated times, and especially when there's a lot of state, a lot at stake for everybody. Is, is that how you see it? Well, look, I think often what the times do is they take much older questions and just represent them in a new form. I mean, as you know, you can go back and you can find virtually every question we might consider now having been considered at an earlier age uh, across many different cultures. But I think what these times do is that they heighten a very curious phenomenon about ethics, and that is uh, ethics is very troubling to people, not because of its specific content, but because it's an area in human life which denies absolute certainty of a kind which we deeply crave. I think people actually would be surprised, many people would be surprised there because they think, oh, ethics is going to give us a certain way. You know, we look to ethics, tell us the right thing. Yeah. But as you say, what it does is it actually exposes the, the, the hundred questions living in one question. Yeah, but it has an even more profound point where, uh, and it's to do with the way in which competing values and principles can draw you in opposite directions 
both directions being valid ones. So just to take a very trite example at the moment, uh, you might be committed to compassion and you might also be committed to telling the truth. And yet you'll know there'll be moments in your life, say, when a loved one says, well, how do I look in this new hat or whatever it happens to be, where if you were to tell them the truth, you were going to hurt them. And it's theoretically possible that the commitment to truth pulling you to the right and the commitment to compassion pulling you to the left are perfectly balanced and all things being equal, there is in principle then no right answer. And so this has all sorts of very important implications. First of all, it should relieve us of the expectation that we place upon ourselves or that others might try to place upon us for an ethical perfection, which is impossible. But it also creates a different kind of obligation, which is to approach these difficult questions with sincerity and as much capacity and competence as we can bring to bear. And so rather than being defeated by something like that, I think it should awaken within us in a very ordinary sense um, the need to do more without constantly hoisting herself on the petard of an unrealistic and impossible expectation. But that, what I've just said there about that fundamental reality, which is not always the case. I mean, sometimes there is a right answer and a wrong answer. It's, but it's just these dilemmas become more evident to us during such times. This goes completely against the cultural grain because ever since the Enlightenment, human beings have been engaged in a form of rationality called calculative rationality, which is precisely designed to give us certainty. And the desire for certainty is what fundamentalists, of course, use as their siren call when they say to people, look, you know, life is messy and, yes, Longstaff says it's balanced, but you don't have to worry about any of that. All you have to do is come and obey what I say. And people say, oh, thank heavens, I don't have to think about this. It's all solved. You know, I'll just I'll surrender into their arms. And it's incredibly dangerous, <laughs> but I understand why it happens. So times like these, when you're confronted day in by day, these decisions, it, it becomes seductive. Do you think they people consciously, or I guess mindfully, uh, um, offer themselves up in that way, or is it more of an emotional kind of just collapse into the arms of the church or whatever? Oh, I, I, th I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, I, I suspect if you asked what's the majority view about fundamentalism, and it can occur in religion, politics, pretty much any area, it's the abandonment to a sense of certainty provided by others, and therefore relief from the requirement to have to make decisions as we are bound to do as human beings in conditions sometimes of radical uncertainty. And I think you know, there'll be others who work themselves very patiently and committed and there are others who don't even think about it at all. They just grow up that way. And, and they're just, you know, inducted into a way of life which they inherit perhaps from their parents or grandparents or they belong to a certain tradition. And so it's never a question for them at all. But I, I just worry that that kind of life uh, which is, can be lived in a perfectly decent way, falls short of what we could do as human beings, which is to choose quite consciously the examined life rather than the merely compliant life of habit, even those habits are virtuous. To, to do that, you've got to actually look beyond your established or stated position. And today, when I'm, I'm thinking of this in terms of you talking about the desire for certainty, and before this interview, we had a quick chat and we talked about our mutual, I guess, despair at the fact that conversations being closed down, mm. people take a fixed position to the degree that they won't even listen to the other side. Mm. In my last year, I think at The Age, I was covering some of those uh, uh, anti-Islam protests 
And, uh, you know, the left would turn up and be very loud about it. There'd be the anti-Islamic pro- protests uh, with them you know, wearing masks and so forth. I'd, I'd actually just write about what I saw, how, how different sides behaved. And I wrote up a piece and, and did what I felt was my objective job. I got so many uh, emails and, and, and tweets and such saying, you didn't say, you didn't call these people Nazis. This is from the left. You know, I wasn't calling the anti-Islamists Nazis and there are all these Nazis there. Didn't I see them? Well, no, I, I didn't see them. I just saw a lot of angry people. And uh, not only that, I, I dared to actually spoke, to speak to some of these Nazis and, and actually quote them. And that was a terrible thing to do. Um, and there was no way I could kind of persuade this person to say, well, look, I'm I'm just trying to figure out what, what everyone's about. Um, and, and the idea was, no, no, we know what they're about and we don't want to hear it. Well, they may have known what they were about, but, of course, you know, the, the wider community needs to engage. I mean, I, I think it's very important that even the most challenging ideas be brought into the light and that people who are championing them be required to defend their position rather than simply have it grow in the dark weeds away from sight. Oh, there are a couple of boundaries that I, I'd set. I mean, I, I mean, so I'm generally, you know, I have a, a prima facie commitment to as much free speech as possible, to engagement with ideas, even if they challenge everything we believe so that we can form a view about it and challenge it. The two exceptions I would have are where a person incites violence and secondly, where they deny the essential humanity, the fundamental dignity of another person. Because I think we now know from too many cases in history, some of them truly, truly horrific, what comes from saying of one group or another, well, they're not fully human. And so I, I wouldn't, I don't think there's any room for that view to be put. I think it's, um, it's a ridiculous one in many senses to do it. Uh, it doesn't advance any better understanding. But if somebody wants to tell me that I'm fat or stupid or to insult me or to take it, put forward a proposition which I would find extraordinary or alarming, I'd rather hear it and know who I'm dealing with rather than see it buried away. Yeah, I think in Australian terms, I, I think we had this opportunity uh, when Pauline Hanson arrived on the scene, uh, a person who was full of anger, wasn't overly articulate, but a lot of people identified with her. I remember the media reaction was to sort of swamp these gatherings and and describe them in terms of Nuremberg or something, mm. uh, yeah, you know, great Nazi rallies, and I felt a great opportunity was lost to actually talk to those people, find out what their beef was, uh, and, and get a conversation going that could perhaps get their own sense of belonging and, and what was at stake to, to, to kind of remedy what was obviously an emerging split as opposed to what we ended up doing, both media, the media response uh, and then through, uh, I guess, political exploitation we just furthered that split. We've, we've basically we've basically lost those people. What do you think? Yeah, well, one of the most interesting things I've learned over the years is that uh, if you set out to change a person's mind by telling them all the things that are wrong in their position, then you almost never get anywhere in doing that unless you're in a very particular environment where that's expected. And the reason you don't, of course, is when you turn up to someone and say, you're wrong and I'm going to show you why, Rather than listening to you, they immediately go into a defensive posture. They reject anything you might say. So surprisingly, you make far greater progress if you take people entirely seriously 
even if they start with an entirely outrageous proposition, you take it seriously and let them, you know, without any guile in this, let them tell you what they think. And what's so interesting about it when you do this is that once people are taken seriously and you can reframe what they're saying, they then are much more likely to engage. But they're also much more likely to tell you where they would define the boundary point beyond which they wouldn't go. So they might begin by saying, oh, I think this and I think that, but then they'll say at some point, oh, yes, but I wouldn't do it there. And the moment somebody says, well, I wouldn't do it there, you've got a completely new conversation that you can embark upon. Why, why did you draw the boundary there? Why not that group? Why not include them? Or why do you think it doesn't apply in this case and so forth? And then they'll have a conversation with you. But, you know, that takes a bit of time. It takes a certain kind of discipline. It takes a, a kind of curiosity about the strange and sometimes the troubling. But I think even if your intention is to try and bring about, you know, a better understanding and some change that flows from that, to do that rather than simply to say you're wrong and this is why, I think is the better space to go. That's right. That's that's why I sort of felt that the, the, the rise of Hansenism was that missed opportunity to find out, you know, why are people angry? what you can do to help them to maybe even feel better, to actually have some compassion more than just... Uh, yeah, and, and then they may have perfectly good reasons for being angry, and I think many of them do. It's just that the yeah. only person who has listened to their anger has come up with a solution which actually doesn't do anything about it. Uh, so this is, you know, this is the problem. I mean, so often, whether you look at what's happened in the United States with those people who've been uh, found an affinity with President Trump or... You know, the Brexiteers or whatever it happens to be, there are really good reasons to be angry. It's just that no one's listened to them until someone's come along and they've heard them, they've re-articulated their concerns, but they've provided a really bad solution. And it doesn't actually leave anybody in a better position. Just one thing has happened. They've been heard and they've been reflected back to themselves. Listen, you talked about that you were surprised and I might be probably misquoting you, but earlier in the conversation, you said you were surprised that people didn't raise the questions of of life and death quite as much in the COVID nineteen setting. Overseas, it's a big issue. Yeah, it has been overseas. Yeah, young doctors, young nurses dying because they've had multiple exposures to people they've been caring for, who many of them who ended up dying as as well. Doctors deciding, well, who gets the ventilator, mm. who doesn't, that mm. sort of thing. An extension of actually decisions they make even in, in better times to a degree. But there's a personal element here for you in, in because these questions are an echo of the ethical choice that your mother made and one that was actually central to her death. When you were seven years mm. old, your mother was pregnant with her fourth child. Her doctor warned her that if the pregnancy proceeded, it would kill her mm. and probably kill the baby too. She, in fact, died and the baby survived. I have read that that's obviously had a, a, a big impact on you, as, as it would. But um, to what degree do you keep weighing up those questions, those, those life and death questions, both in the COVID-19 setting, but just more at large? Because I don't think they're questions that just go away. Oh, no. And they're, and they're part of my professional life, too. I mean, you know, we do have, have done right. and will continue to provide clinical support for clinicians who are having to think about these issues and family members who find themselves in circumstances where they have to make these very subtle distinctions between whether or not what they're being asked to do is to prolong life or to make someone they love just die slowly. And the same technology can do both things. But the difference for my mother, and I think from the clinicians who 
we're deeply fearful of being in the same position as others overseas and having to make these these life and death questions, which can very much lead to both moral fatigue and then ultimately the risk of moral injury. The difference with my mother is that she made the choice. So it was uh, her life and uh, she understood the implications of effectively taking a, making a choice that would lead her to die, leaving behind uh, a husband she loved and then by then four children if the fourth child had lived, which uh, Angus did. And But instead of having someone else decide for her, like a doctor who then feels, you know, well, who am I to do this? I know I have to, but, you know, that, that's where the trauma can potentially arise. She was making this choice. And, and so I suppose, I mean, I didn't really, I understood she'd, made the choice, but I didn't understand the depth of it until I was much older and already doing this work at the Ethics Centre and found this yeah. letter or was given it that she'd written to her sister where she outlined this terrible dilemma. And then sort of aspects of my life um, made sense, whether it was coincidence or whether she'd said something, I, I just don't know, I can't remember. But I have seen this there. And, and of course, what you then do is you you see with a perhaps a different degree of compassion why it matters that these ethical questions be part of everyday life. No, and I, and I imagine there are people who probably have contacted the Ethics Centre who've faced something similar. Well, I, I, I still remember earlier this year a couple with uh, a 13-week-old baby that had been born with a genetic defect and was only able to be right. sustained because of um, quite, quite um, invasive uh, medical intervention, which was causing the baby immense distress, pain and suffering. And the parents um, with the child at home feeling that they were making their child suffer and wondering, could they even have that conversation with someone about the balance between preserving the baby's life? And they love the little child, uh, like any parent would. But could they even yeah. raise that question to say, how do we balance this without being thought of as bad parents? So, yeah, they, these are the sorts of things that people experience every day. Uh, and then there will be other people experiencing the trauma of different types of choices they make, which weigh upon them as individuals just as much as the ones I've just been describing, but may not seem to be such a big deal to others. But for them in the crisis of the moment, it can be crushing. Look, Simon, if we had eight hours, I reckon it wouldn't be enough. Thank you for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, John. Yeah, good luck with it all, and thanks for the opportunity to join you in conversation. Next week, I'm talking with Reverend Tim Costello, one of the great campaigners for a more decent world. We'll be talking about how we need to equip ourselves for what could be a long struggle with COVID-19 and how to think about and plan for the future. And by the way... Where is God in all this for the godless? Thanks for listening and look after yourselves.